Um, thank you for preaching the sermon. So how about the benediction? <laughs> no, I think I'm going to have to give the second reading anyway. Uh, our second reading this morning picks up where the first one left off. It reads this way. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will these evil people continue to complain against me? I have heard their complaints and their griping. So tell them, the Lord says that he will surely do all these things to you that you complain about. This is what will happen to you. You will die in the desert. Every person who is 20 years old or older and was counted as one of my people will die. You complained against me. None, so none of you will ever enter and live in the land that I promised to give you. Only Caleb and Joshua will enter that land. You were afraid and complained that your enemies in that new land would take your children away from you. So I tell you that I will bring them, your children, into the land. They will enjoy what you refused to accept. As for you people, you will die in this desert. Your children will wander around like shepherds here in the desert for 40 years. They will suffer because you were not faithful to me. They must suffer until all of you lie dead in the desert. For 40 years you will suffer for your sins. That is one year for each of the 40 days that the men explored the land. You will know that it is a terrible thing for me to be against you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I promise that I will do these things to all these evil people. They have come together against me, so they will all die here in this desert. The men Moses sent to explore the new, man, the new land were the ones who came back complaining about him to all the Israelites. They said that the people were not strong enough to enter the land. The men were responsible for spreading the trouble among the Israelites, so the Lord caused a sickness to kill those men. But Joshua and Caleb were among the men who were sent out to explore the land, and they are the only ones who did not get the sickness that caused the others to die. When Moses told the Israelites this, they were very sad. Early the next morning, the people started to go up the high hill country. They said, we have sinned. We are sorry that we didn't trust the Lord. We will go to the place that the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you not obeying the Lord's command? You will not be successful. Do not go into that land. The Lord is not with you, so your enemies will easily defeat you. The Amalekites and the Canaanites will fight against you there. You have turned away from the Lord, so he will not be with you when you fight them, and you will all be killed in battle. But the people did not believe Moses. They went toward the high hill country, but Moses and the box of the Lord's agreement did not go with the people. The Amalekites and the Canaanites living in the hill country came down and attacked the Israelites and easily defeated them and chased them all the way to Hormah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you um, for your presence in our lives. We thank you that uh, though you are outside of time, you are involved in time. Though you are before and after us, you are involved in the details of our lives. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness uh, to 
your own word and your faithfulness to the people that you love. We thank you that you are a long-suffering God, that you are a God uh, who forgives. We pray this day that as we uh, dig into this text that we might understand where we fit into it. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would fly straight and true and that it would find its mark. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you part one of this sermon and we'll wrap it up next week. This reading uh, this morning is about fear and it's about what fear does to us and what fear produces in us. It's about fear and the consequences of fear. And it's about fear and faith. The book of Numbers is part of the Bible. It's part of God's revelation to us. The story that we read today happened historically. It is A lesson to us, however, it was written down and it was preserved for us so that we might hear and receive and understand and act on this lesson that's been preserved for us. I say this passage is about fear and about faith because the book of Numbers is a book of history for sure, but it's also a book of religious revelation. It does not only tell us the facts about what happened in the past, but it also pulls aside a veil which separates this world from the divine world, two worlds that are actually absolutely connected. And because it's revelation, it shows us what these historical facts mean from the divine point of view. By the way, we can look at our own lives in the same way. Your lives have a historical reality, but in fact you are connected to the divine realm. And when we meditate on God's providence in our lives, we're precisely looking for those, those ligaments that connect us with the divine. This morning we need to talk about fear and about faith. This passage was recorded for us and it was preserved through centuries because we today face the same issues that these people in ancient times faced. We face these same issues in our religious life. We face them in our home life. We face them in the life of the church. The book of Numbers, as I've already told you, is a book about our lives as Christians. It's a book about our pilgrimage. And all of us in this pilgrimage do face questions regarding faith and fear or fear and faith and so God in the book of Numbers gives us this lesson from the life of the children of Israel. This is a lesson about how to be a faithful Christian. It's a lesson about how to how to please God and it's a lesson about how we can enter into the blessings and the abundance that God desires to give to his people. Okay, so we're going to talk about faith and we're going to talk about fear. All of us have fears. Even those of us who are very brave, some of you are very brave, but you have your fears. All of us have fears. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with the the middle school uh, uh, students in chapel. I, I, I preach in chapel here every Thursday. If you don't get enough on Sunday, you can come back on Thursday morning. Uh, we, were, we were talking about the, the fears that, that they have, that these you know, young teenagers have. First one that came up was the fear of criticism, which surprised me. 
fear of parental disapproval. What kid wants to go home with a bad report card? And think about how many of the interactions between parents and young people is just parents criticizing what the young people are doing. Oh, we say that we're doing it for their good. We say that we're doing it to keep them safe. We say that we're doing it so they can get ahead in the world. We say that we're doing it because we know better, because we're wiser, because we have the experience. But the reality is because all of us are hardwired to seek approval and to seek affirmation, all of that criticism causes the young people to shrink back. It causes them to pull away. It causes them to hide, to protect themselves. And then we parents, you know, wonder why our teenagers are so distant from us, so secretive. Well, probably because every time they make themselves known to us, we smack them upside the head with our wisdom. And by the way, we adults hate criticism too. Maybe we're not so concerned about what our parents think. Maybe our parents are dead, but we do care about what our bosses think and what our neighbors think and what our colleagues think and what our peers think. There's a lot of anxiety when people go to their 20th high school reunion because we do care about what other people think about us. Are we successful? Are we attractive? We're afraid of what other people think. We are afraid of criticism. It's a very primary fear that people have. The other fear that was mentioned, again, this one took me by surprise. I don't know what I was expecting. Young people here, sitting here, said they're afraid of dying. They're 13, they're 12, they're 14. Afraid of dying. Okay, middle schoolers surprise me. But the truth is, I never even thought about being shot at school when I was a kid. Where I lived in Neosho, Missouri, we had tornado drills. You know, that was part of life. We'd go into the hallway and, you know, duck and cover. But here in this country today, every child in America has to learn what to do if there's an active shooter in the building. That's the country we've made. Kids live with that fear. Maybe you parents are afraid of it too, but the kids have it every day at, at a, 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 an anxiety-producing level. For some of our kids, there's not only violence or the possibility of violence at school, but there's also possibility of violence at home or on the streets. And in all of this, the children feel powerless because the people, the adults in the world who were assigned to protect them are not able to protect them or are unwilling to protect them or are, in fact, the ones who are causing the damage. Kids worry about this. Kids also fear dying from illness, which might surprise you, because not every child has robust health. Some of our children have very precarious health. Some of the children in this congregation have spent a lot of time in hospitals. Now, when we get older, we worry about dying too. I've done uh, nearly 100 funerals at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. I've spent a lot of time with people who are in that stage of life that comes at the end, and there is fear 
In my experience, that fear falls into two categories. The first one is the fear of the pain of death. You know, that's kind of a primal animal fear. These days, it's very normal when people come to the end of their life that anti-anxiety medications are part of their treatment. Okay? The, the, the medication doesn't make them better, but it, it keeps them from worrying about the fact that they're not going to get better. It takes away the, that, the, the pain of the fear. But there is a bigger fear, actually, than the fear of the pain of death that I've noticed as people draw closer to the end of their lives and that is a fear of a loss of control now as children we don't have much control it's actually one of the reasons that I like them when they're you know this side like when we can carry them all right Sebastian you know very beautiful He's in the other room. You can take a look at him out in the nursery. But he's still at that size where you can just pick him up, right? You just, you just pick him up, and he doesn't have any choice. You just pick him up, and you haul him around, make him happy, right? So that's the life of a child, but as we get older, we begin to take control of our lives. We gain control over the money in our pockets, and we build our houses, and we choose our careers, and we decide where we're going to live, and we join our clubs, and piece by piece, we gain control over the environment that we are living in, and the richer we are, and we're rich people the more control that we have and the more control that we expect. But inevitably, with aging comes the giving up of that control. We begin to lose it. Our wealth diminishes. The neighborhood changes. All of the institutions that we have come to rely on, you know, how the phone works and what the television is projecting and how the grocery store works and what the music is on the radio and the uniforms that our teams play, all of those change over the course of time incrementally. When we're young, those changes are exciting. We look forward to the new spring fashions. We like the latest band's on the radio, my daughter Mia is 13 years old, and uh, she's teaching me about all the new bands, okay? She's, she's listening to this very interesting music, and she's, oh, you got to listen to this band. I did that when I was 13, too. It's exciting. It's less exciting when you get old. When we get old, we hate the changes. We hate the new fashions. We think that paradise was that time in our youth and we cling to it desperately but little by little inevitably ineluctably like sand slipping through our fingers the past erodes and it goes away and there's nothing that we can do to stop it no matter how hard we try to control the situation look I've because I've been involved in a hundred funerals, I've seen people try to control the world after they're dead. They've planned the party for after they're dead. Look, you're dead. Give it up. And of course, the greatest indignity is that at the end we even lose control of our bodies. We become like infants again. 
And we got nurses tending our bodies the way that we have to take care of babies. And that makes us really afraid. Our reading this morning is about fear. It is about fear and what fear does to us and what fear produces in us. It's about fear and its consequences. But this passage is also about faith, which, by the way, just to let you know where this is going, faith is the opposite of fear. The 12 explorers have returned, we learned this last week, from their expedition in the land of Canaan. They spent fully 40 days going from south to north and from the north back to the south again, looking at the land, looking at the cities, looking at its inhabitants. Ten of the 12 say, hey, this land is beautiful. The crops are abundant, but the people are big and they're going to destroy us. Two of the 12, however, Joshua and Caleb, say, hey, the land is beautiful, the crops are abundant, and we should go up immediately and occupy it. Now, as I mentioned last week, all 12 explorers seem to have misunderstood their mission. Moses, who's speaking for God, did not tell them to bring back a recommendation about whether or not to occupy the land. Moses, speaking for God, said, we are going to occupy the land. We just want some information about the land before we get there. God's decision that the children of Israel will occupy Canaan has already been made. God made the decision, and now the children of Israel have an option. They have a choice to make of the, for themselves. Will they get on board and join what it is that God is doing or will they be afraid, will they rebel, and will they be left behind? And what we read about today is about them being left behind. Because the fear rules, because they're faithless, and because they rebel, because they're afraid. The camp is in a riot The people are shouting loudly. They're complaining against Moses and Aaron who speak for God. And they articulate their core fear there in verse 3. The enemy will kill us. The enemy will take our wives and our children. Now that's not an irrational fear. That fear is based upon the reality of warfare, at least warfare with barbarians. Part of the strategy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been the systematic rape of women and the deportation of Ukrainian children. The rape of civilians has been a strategic part of the Russian invasion plan and the stealing of children, taking them from the Ukraine and shipping them to Russia where they're renamed, adopted, and perhaps lost for all time to their true parents is the crime for which the dictator of Russia has been indicted by the International Criminal Court. It is, of course, one thing as a soldier to be afraid of dying in battle, but it's an entirely different thing to be afraid that your wife back home is going to be raped and that your children are going to be stolen and that you'll never see them again. And so the fear of the Israelite army, it's real, it's not irrational, 
And their fear is so large that they say, let's choose another leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Now think for a moment how large your fear has to be that you'd be willing to go back to slavery. Can it be that there are some situations that are in fact worse than slavery? That you would prefer to be a slave than to face these conditions? Well, one of those conditions might be that you would lose your wife or your children. How much would you be willing to put up with if it meant that at least you could keep your wife and kids? Think again about the strategy of the Russian invaders. Psychologically, it makes sense. Some Ukrainians might prefer to just give in to the Russian demands, to allow themselves to be absorbed and ruled by this country that doesn't have the rule of law or democracy or a free press, just so I can keep my babies and my wife. Now, while Moses and Aaron, who, by the way, are old men at this time, while Moses and Aaron are abashed by the riot of the Israelites who want to go back, Caleb and Joshua, who were young men, say, don't be afraid. God's going to give us that land. In their fear, the Israelites then want to kill Caleb and Joshua. That's one of the things that fear will do. Fear will cause you to have a murderous hate for those who make you feel like you're going to lose something. And of course, fear is all about a loss of control, a loss of what we've come to expect or the claim as our own. And when that's threatened, we turn into wild animals on those who induce that fear in us. Even though there are only two men, Joshua and Caleb. They have this call, however, to not be afraid and to go up into the land. And it makes the whole army of Israel feel like they're a bunch of cornered animals. You know how dangerous cornered animals can be. The only thing that saves the life of Caleb and Joshua in this case is that God himself has to show up. All right? Remember, he shows, he's got that cloud thing going, that pillar of fire thing going. And we read in verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared over the meeting tent and all the people could see it. God was actually seen by these people. And that saved the life of Caleb and Joshua. We're going to have to break it here because we're out of time. So we'll come back next week and talk about what this means in the life of the church and in the life of God's saints. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you um, saved us and you redeemed us from sin and death. And your holy word tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear. But we've been given a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of most high God. Lord, I pray that we would live in that reality that we do not need to be afraid that Almighty God is our Father and our protector and our provider, that Almighty God knows the future, that Almighty God has that future in his hand, that Almighty God will not allow anyone, any power 
to snatch us out of your hand. Lord, I pray that our confidence might come in that knowledge. Lord, increase our faith and diminish our fear. Rescue us from our fear so that we won't be like irrational animals. Lord God, the truth is is that some of us here this morning are afraid. Our situation at home, our situation at work, our medical condition, what's going on in our neighborhoods have us afraid. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to move with grace and strength in you. I pray that you would be our provider. I pray that our confidence would be in you and not in ourselves. I pray that we would trust in Almighty God and not in chariots and horses. Lord God, you have desired to make for yourself a people who would freely choose you and freely believe in you and freely love you. Give us that ability. Give us the faith that we need to not be afraid and to move forward into the future that you have for us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.